0: If you turn to Isaiah chapter 1, we'll pick up in verse 18, we'll finish chapter 1. And we will continue our journey now at a fairly uh, hefty pace, uh, trying to tackle about a chapter a week for a while. And so after we get through chapter 1, uh, we'll be following it in essence with a chapter each week. So uh, get prepared for this journey through Isaiah. Sometimes I hear people say things like, I I just have blind faith. I wanna remind you that the Bible does not teach any such concept. The Bible nowhere speaks of blind faith. And tonight here in the book of Isaiah, we get a glimpse, a picture, uh, if you will, of what real faith looks like. Because real faith is also reasonable faith. It's still faith but it's not blind faith. And so as the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, brings this indictment of the nation of Israel, uh, principally the southern tribe of Judah, uh, to a conclusion, the prophet Isaiah says something that's important for each of you to know. God wants you to have a well-reasoned faith. And so in verse 18, we see, let's reason together. This is how God approaches all things. Now, God is still God, and he still acts according to his perfect will and his purposes. We cannot know everything that God knows, nor will he tell you everything that he does, but he always tells us enough so that our faith has reason. And so would you join me, we'll pray. We'll pick up here in verse 18 and we'll finish chapter one tonight. Father, thank you. Lord, I thank you that my faith is absolutely reasonable. Lord, I thank you that it's not blind. That it isn't just some leap into an abyss. It's not some transcendental meditative state that I go into. It's not some cultish behavior built on feelings. My faith is reasonable. You've shown me enough of yourself. You've encouraged me through your character in this world which is visible through your creation and through the lives that are lived of others. That the faith that I have to believe in you, though my sins were as scarlet, you can make them white as wool. Thank you, Lord, for faith Thank you that that faith is reasonable. Increase our faith tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 18 here in Isaiah 1. Come now. And remember the Lord is speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Let us reason together, says the Lord. And so, though this is Isaiah speaking these words, it's Isaiah that jots down these words. This is the word of the Lord. Let's reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they're blood red. They shall be as white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. This is a... Beautiful picture, of course, of the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus, amen? And so before the Lord comes, by some 700 years, 600 and probably 86 years or so, the prophet Isaiah writes these words, speaking to the children of Israel who are absolutely guilty. They have all sinned. They've all fallen short of the glory of God. He's actually going to say that as we get near the end of this book. But they're being reminded, look, you have an opportunity to do something about that. You're not simply stuck in this endless cycle of your sins being as scarlet. They're they're not going to be a stain if you will take the remedy. They can be dealt with. You might be one of those that, as I was at a point in time in my walk with the Lord, might be saying to yourself, well, God is sovereign. God is just, God is holy. God doesn't have to explain anything to me. He can do anything he wants to do and I have to do it. There are a lot of people who look at the relationship with God rather than through the lens of real faith, they look at it through primarily an obligation to a sovereign and holy God. And while God is sovereign, while God is holy and he is just, he is also reasonable. He's fair, he's merciful, he's kind, he's gentle, he's tender, he is unwilling that any should perish, and he desires that all come to repentance. And so be careful about assigning a harshness to God that nowhere in his word do we really find. Oh, we find a just God, a God that is absolutely willing to punish evil, and take extremes to do so. A God that has actually said there's only two choices, heaven and hell, you get to pick, and hell is real. Make no mistake, those things are true. But simply because those things exist does not make God unreasonable. He wants us to think with him, to use our minds. He gave you a beautiful mind With billions of neural connections for a reason. Every one of those synapses in your brain is there because God ordained it, created it. Every time you think a thought, that beautiful meat computer that sits inside of your cranium is doing its job. And so God wants you to think with Him. He doesn't challenge us to leap into what people call blind faith. It was invented by people who don't know the Lord. The Bible has faith described in a very, very wonderful way and you can turn there if you'd like or I'll read it to you from Hebrews 11, verses one and two. The writer of the book of Hebrews gives us some insight before he moves on to describe people who expressed faith, who lived lives of faith, he first tells us what real faith looks like. Now faith is, is how Hebrews 11 starts. Now faith is. In other words, he's saying, This is what faith actually looks like. This is how it functions. This is how you can know real faith. Faith is the substance. In other words, it's substantive, it has meat, it has weight. It is something that you can measure, it is something that you can test, it is not ethereal. Faith is not just mental. Faith has substance. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Now I would think if you're here and you know the Lord, you are hoping for a whole bunch of things from the Lord, amen? Amen. That he will one day take us home to heaven, amen? Amen? that that heaven is a real place wherein there is the fullness of God's joy. There are all kinds of things that we have yet seen, but we know that there's substance to them because we saw other people live their lives for that same hope and even forfeit their life for that same hope, believing that those things are true because God said so. There is substance to it. I have seen that substance when I sit with people, especially those who are near the end of their life, and very especially those who have an incredible peace that is visible when they are about to take their last breath before they go and see the one that we hope for. You see, because I have sat also with people who don't know the Lord who do the same thing, and there is a very different substance of their life. I can tell you the truth between those two. I've looked into the eyes of someone who's about to meet Jesus, and it is the most joyous, freeing thing that one can possibly imagine. I've had people tell me, I'm going to go. I had a lady one time say, the angels are here. I don't know what she saw, but I can tell you she saw it. She wasn't flipping out. She wasn't on acid sitting there having some bad trip. There was substance to the fact that she was going to meet Jesus. And I've seen the other substance, the lack of faith. The agonizing, the screaming, the swearing. The gasping for the very last breath, trying to hang on. There is a substance to our faith. And God says, reason with me about this faith. It is the substance of things hoped for, and uh, notice this, the evidence of things not seen. It's substantive, and it's evidentiary. When you go into court and there's evidence presented, those things are tangible pieces of information that can be verified, amen? Amen? Might be a murder weapon, maybe it'll be a photo from a camera somewhere that was taken. There you are, getting into your car, you're heading away from the bank, that's called evidence. The Greek word that's used here is used as evidence of your faith. In other words, there's proof of your faith. God wants you to reason with him in a way that you understand the substance and you understand the evidence of the faith that he's given you to believe, because you are saved by believing, amen? That is faith. But that faith is in the living Christ. That faith is in the one who died on Calvary's cross and was raised three days later. There is evidence. During the first 200 years of the church, Perhaps several million people died for exactly one reason. They would not renounce Jesus Christ as Lord. They paid with their life. That's evidence, amen? There's no stronger evidence that someone believes something is true than they would forfeit their life for that truth. And so faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By what? Faith. By faith. By faith we understand. That the worlds were framed by the word of God. I was on K-Wave doing pastor's perspective on Tuesday and we got this question. Do you really believe that the universe was created in seven days? And I said, absolutely, I absolutely do. I said, if you happen to be an evolutionary astrophysicist, you believe it was created in a whole bunch shorter period of time than that, called the Big Bang. You believe that there was a singularity that all of the mass in the entire universe was compressed down into a single ball, smaller than a basketball, that existed somehow, even though there's no way for it to exist because it caused cannot be greater than the thing it causes, and vice versa, it's a basic law of physics. But you believe that nothing became something, exploded and got very ordered. You see, the evidence of my faith is, I see an ordered universe. A very precisely ordered universe, in fact. Where the gravitational tug of galaxies and stars is completely in sync so they don't crash in one to another. To where the systems and cells in your body somehow manage to store the information necessary to operate them while an evolutionist says that those cells were yet not formed because you must have the information to operate the system prior to the system existing in that sense. So you see, my faith is very, very reasonable. And so the writer of Hebrews says, by faith, the worlds were spoken into existence. So when God's word says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then it's defined by six calendar days that we would call solar days, defined by a morning and an evening, using the Hebrew word yom, it goes on to be used in your Bible 2300 more times and it means a solar day. I have no problem believing God because that takes less faith and has more evidence than the poor person that believes nothing became something and exploded and got ordered because that goes against every law of physics and all the laws of thermodynamics. So when someone says to you, well, God doesn't care what you think, you can tell, tell them, oh yes, he does. Let's reason together. I believe in God's character, I, I believe in God's promises. I have absolute assurance, I have strong conviction. I'm not, well, I just, you know, God just told me to believe. If you're that type of Christian, I, I want to encourage you to dig a little deeper. The work that's been done on creation science in the last 20 or 30 years is mind boggling. The number of problems that exist in trying to explain how the universe got here, whether you're talking about cosmology, the study of origins, or breaking it down to astrophysics or any other system or or science that you can think of. There's so many problems with evolutionary thinking that when it gets right down to it, I need way less faith to just simply believe that God did what he said he did. Your faith is reasonable. Your body is a chemical system. It's a system of cells. You have little tiny motors that exist inside of every one of your cells called mitochondria that extract energy out of the things that you eat. They replicate themselves, reproduce themselves, and they slough themselves off by the billions every day. And yet, you don't disappear. I don't know how, who figured out how to put those inside of every cell before the cell existed because they had to exist or the cell would die but somebody did that we have reasonable faith family reasonable faith I'm not wandering around going wow well, I hope it doesn't rain today I hope God exists I hope Jesus is real no I know Jesus is real My hope is in heaven. And my hope has substance. And so, what faith actually does in that sense is it gives us better vision. For those of you that are fisher persons, notice I didn't say fishermen. I'm being correct. Fisher persons, because my wife Connie is a really good fisher person. I can't call her a fisherman because she's a really gorgeous lady. So I call her a fisher person. If you put on fishing sunglasses, there's a crazy thing that happens. It, it allows you to see through the glare off the water and you can actually sightcast cast a fish that you wouldn't otherwise be able to see. Faith is like that. There's real substance. The world's like that. But faith helps you see beyond what you can actually see without the glasses on. Faith helps me see beyond just the simple realities that are right in front of my face. They're also, faith could be said to be very much like night vision goggles. For those of you that haven't experienced that or maybe you've never looked through a FLIR camera and and seen how thermal imaging works, those types of things. If you're wandering around without that technology and and you go into a situation where it's completely dark and you're trying to see a human being, you're not seeing anybody or anything. But with the right kind of faith, so to speak, as you put on the right kind of faith glasses, then you can literally see in the dark. Can I tell you this world is a dark place and you need those, the, that night vision. You need to see past the things that the enemy's doing in this world. They're also very much like your corrective lenses. Now, I happen to be wearing these crazy glasses called trifocals. So they look like they're a singular lens, but up here on the top, because I really don't need much to see in this range, and I need a little bit of help with reading, so I have some of that down here, and in the middle I have my actual prescription. You see, I have corrective lenses on so that no matter where I'm looking at any point in time, no matter how close or how far, my vision is good. That is exactly how faith works in your life. It is the corrective lens that helps you see spiritually what you could not otherwise see. Your faith helps you reason. It helps you actually discern what's going on right in front of you. You see, because without these, oh, I could read my notes. Without these, I can probably tell if you're in the first or second row, if you're a man or a woman, Without these, if you're in the back, you could be a wildebeest and I wouldn't know it. <laughs> faith spiritually helps me discern everything I see. That's what's being spoken of as the prophet Isaiah says, come. Let's reason together, let's use our faith, let's put on our faith glasses And look at the situation that exists here in Jerusalem as God is pronouncing this judgment on the nation Judah. Let's talk about and let's see correctly what's going on here. And so there's a reason for our faith. You might be looking at this passage and you're going, well, you know, I mean, okay, so what? And so what follows here is though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they're as red as crimson, they may be as white as wool. And he says, let's think about that for a second. Let's see it from God's perspective. Let's understand it. And the reason that this is important is there's a unique Hebrew word that's being used here. And it's the Hebrew word tolaf. It's used there in the to mean scarlet or crimson. can also mean deep red. But it's also used in Psalm 22, where the psalmist speaking of the Messiah says, I am a worm. I am a toalath. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be made white As well, let's think about that before I tell you all the stuff that's wrong with you. I want you to understand there is a solution to the problem. Your sins are as scarlet, but they can be made white as wool. That's exactly what Jesus came to do. There's a reason for my faith. There in Psalm 22, it says, speaking of the Messiah, I am a worm, I am a toloth. Some entomology, if you will, the study of insects. This particular worm, it's a little tiny worm, has some pretty unique pro- possibilities uh, as we study it. It can do some strange things. It was used during, during ancient times to make a red dye. That red dye was indelible. In other words, it could not be erased. And the way that red dye would be released is that little tiny worm, though your sins be as a toalath, they can be made white as wool. As you'd crush the life out of that little worm As you'd squeeze every last drop out of it and diffuse it into a dye and dye a garment with it. The way that worm came about is when it was, before it was in its larval stage, it would go and attach itself to a piece of wood permanently and it would die on that wood. You getting the picture? And it would be from the crushing and the bruising of that worm that the red dye would come out. And that worm lived just long enough after giving birth that it would send off its little ones. Anybody hearing the story of Jesus? And then it would die. Just long enough to care for its disciples. So though your sins be as scarlet, they can be made white as wool. The prophet Isaiah is painting a picture of what will happen as Messiah comes. He's saying, look, you got a really serious problem. The die is permanent for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God unless there's a remedy unless there's a redeemer, unless something's done, there's nothing you can do about that red stain. But he says there is somebody coming who can, someone who can take care of that. In other words, Jesus prefigured in this picture. Let's reason together just like Jesus' life would be squeezed out for you, squeezed out for me, just like he would be nailed to a piece of wood, just like he would live just long enough to see his progeny go off and begin to live their lives, it would be then that he would die alone. So Isaiah setting the picture for the whole rest of this book. He puts the Jewish people in Judah on notice in the very first chapter. Here's your problem. This is what's wrong. Right now you have scarlet stained sins. He says, let's reason together. They can be washed, they can be cleansed, they they can be healed. But God's not going to force his will. He's not going to force his way. He's given you totally, completely free moral agency, free will, free choice. It's the only way that the word believe means a thing in the New Testament. Jesus repeated it over and over and over and over again. He said, it is enough that you believe you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you see say there's just this constant focus on you having to to receive the good news of the gospel. That would be meaningless if there wasn't a problem first and if there wasn't a solution. Doesn't do you a bit of good to believe in a solution if you don't think you have a problem. And doesn't do you a bit of good to believe in the problem unless there's a solution, unless you're just a masochist. And so, let's reason together. Let's think about this. Verse 19. For if you were willing and obedient. There's the object that that comes into view for us. To believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be saved. I have to acknowledge first that I'm a sinner and that I need a savior. I've got a problem. That I have some scarlet stained sins and those sins aren't going to take care of themselves. If you are willing and if you are obedient, you'll see, you shall eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse, anybody see a choice here? It's exactly two choices willingness and obedience, and refuse and rebel. But if you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He says, look, your sins are of scarlet. They can be made white as wool. Let's reason together about this. If you're willing, if you're obedient, if you will turn from your sin, you'll you'll actually walk away from what I'm about to tell you. Then there's a solution, but you've got to choose the solution. Think about it. You see, sometimes people will come and they'll say, well, I don't need a Savior. And I will usually try and, you know, dig in a little bit. I go, well, why do you think that? Why is it? And they will usually say something like, well, I'm already good. And so they don't blow anything out of my nose or snicker too loudly. I'll say, can you give me an example of your goodness? You know, what are some of the good things you do? And it's usually that they don't do the really bad things that other people do to the extent that they do them. It is rare that they don't admit that they have all kinds of sin issues according to what scripture says sin is, which is simply missing the mark of God's holiness. It's anything that's unpleasing to God from God's perspective. They go, well, I'm good. And I'll usually say something like, but you're not good enough. They'll go, what do you mean? And then they'll usually compare themselves to other people again. It's like, well this guy does that and this guy says it has nothing to do with that. Your sins are a scarlet and your sins need to be made white as well. It doesn't matter what the other person has decided to do with theirs. It's what have you done and what have you decided to do with yours? What do you think about your sin? You're missing the mark. You need Jesus to get that sin out. You can't do it yourself. It's an indelible die. So much so that the scriptures remind us that there's none righteous, not one. In me dwells no good thing. In this, the body of flesh dwells zip good things. I can do good things, I can even think some good things. But as far as being good, we can all mess up a good thing. Amen? And so the Bible says well, let's think about it. Let's ponder this. Let's use our minds to really consider this this problem that is before us. And so he goes on to say in verse 21 how the faithful city has become a harlot. Now, he's speaking in Jerusalem of Judah. And in the city of Jerusalem would have also been the Levites, and also the tribe of Benjamin. So, the kingly line. So, you have left the the Levitical line, and you have the kingly line left. That's it. And so, here they are how a faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. You see, when you start thinking about it from God's perspective, the situation gets pretty dire pretty fast. That city had chosen to not follow God. It had been protected by God, been ordained by God, Yerushalayim means the, the city of peace, in essence. Here's the city of peace. Here, here's this progenitor known as as Jacob, Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel, governed by God, heel catcher, governed by God. They're now subjected to these kings, the kings one after another, not only doesn't do the right thing, they inherently do the wrong thing. And so that's crept into the city. And here's this city that God selected from all of the cities on the entire earth. He didn't select Rome. He didn't select Athens. He didn't select Babylon. No place in Europe yet existed uh, in, in any measurable way. He said, This is my city. This is Zion. This is the hill of the living God. He says, it's here I want you to meet with me. It's here my temple will be built. You see, because at that point in time, if you wanted to meet with God, if you wanted your sins forgiven, there was only one group of people on the planet that believed in a singular God. And that was the Jewish people. Islam would not come along. They were monotheistic largely. That wouldn't come along for another nearly 700 years. 641 to be exact. Biblical Christianity didn't exist yet. And so here here we have this incredible problem. This is the city of God. The temple of God is still there on the temple mount. The first temple. And they've turned to the oak groves. They've turned to the high places. They've turned to the worship of false idols. They've turned to the exact same things that still plague man today. The three major categories. And it's the city of David, which is the southern part of the city. So to give you a little bit of a geographical lesson of the city of Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem, if you include the Temple Mount and the city of David or what was known as Zion. We're, We're talking an extremely small area. Less than 50 acres. North of David's palace Hezekiah's tunnel, which was the previous king, the springs of Gihon, Gihon, and the springs or the pools of Siloam, just north of David's palace, they began excavating the city of David. They've been doing this now for about ten or twelve years, and interestingly enough, in the most holy place in the destruction layers of the times of King Hezekiah, guess what they found? All kinds of little tiny gods, exactly three of them, Molech, Mammon, and Baal. Power, passion, possessions. Sexual sin, money and possessions, and unbridled power with other people. And he says, look, your sins are as scarlet. And they're all going, what, we're just making money. They're all going, what are you talking about? You know, I mean, yeah, okay, all right, I got a wife and a girlfriend too, but you know, who really cares about that stuff? You see, when you worshiped Molech, which was worshiped in the Hinnom Valley, which was just to the south, the confluence of the Brook Kidron and the Hinnom's stream, there was a bronze statue there that would be heated up, and you would take your babies and put them on the outstretched arm of Molech. You see, people haven't, move too far from the problems that bothered the people in the city of Jerusalem to our day. We're still tossing children in the arms of Molech because of sexual sin. We just happen to call it abortion. We're still worshiping at the altar of Mammon. We just call it prosperity. Prosperity. We're still worshiping the God of Baal. But we call it politics. We call it unbridled power to rule over others. So in this context, here's why this is important. The prophet Isaiah is saying, your sins are as scarlet. They can be made white as wool, The problem is these things. You've got to stop. He goes on. You've become a harlot. Your silver, verse 22, has become dross. Most of the coinage from the Bronze Age forward was either bronze or silver. At this time of... Human history, it was almost entirely silver. Very rarely was it gold. Gold was normally used for idols and ornamentation, but it was rarely used for coinage. There was still some bronze that was being used, but it was mostly silver. Silver was softer, it was easier to strike. He says, your silver has become dross. Your wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebellious. Harlot, money, And government. Power, passion, possessions. Baal, Mammon, Molech. You've got a problem with the same things that have been bothering humankind since day one. What was the problem with Cain and Abel? Power, passion, possessions. I want what I want and I want it now. And I want, by the way, what you have. Your princes are rebellious, your companions are thieves, and everyone loves bribes. They follow after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless. Nor do, they cause, nor do the cause of the widow come before them. And therefore the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, this is all in the context, your sins are as to Alath. But they can be made white. Ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries. I'll take vengeance on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will purge away your dross. I will take away your alloy. You won't be able to make bronze. You won't be able to make copper. You won't be able to make anything. I will restore your judges as at first. The time of judges had just passed. Some godly, some not. But that period was marked by a singular phrase, and everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. I'll restore your judges. Some of you will be spared by that. Most of you will be lost, just as it was then. And your counselors is in the beginning, and afterwards, you should be called the city of righteousness and the faithful city. And, and you can almost see God... It's like, I don't know how many of you, when you were a kid, you know, if you're old enough, they still make them. How many of you had an Etch-A-Sketch? You know, you turned that thing over upside down and shook it a little bit. It was completely wiped out. It was a blank. He's, he's basically saying, look, I, I want to clean the screen here. I'm just going to tell you, it's just dark. There, there is nothing but problems going on here. So let's write something on there. Though your sins be as scarlet, they can be made white as well. But here's the problem. They could all go, oh man, hey, honey, go ditch the little idol of Molech, okay? Could you kind of get rid of the horned bull that was Baal? And they're all running around, they're scurrying. And interestingly enough is they've been excavating the city, the city of David, Zion, the hill proper, just north of the very location that this story comes from in cracks and crevices are these little tiny idols, little tiny bulls, the horn bull with the outstretched arm, which is Molech, Ashtaroth poles. They say, look, well, let's reason together. The city's a mess. God says, I'll, I'm going to clean it up one way or another. And that's the scary thing God has always said, I'm going to clean it up one way or another. I'm going to give you a chance to relent, repent, and submit. And we can make this white as wool. Or you can keep doing what you're doing, and you can have what's behind door number two. And you don't want that. Some of you are old enough, you snickered at that. You know, let's make a deal. I'm offering you complete forgiveness conditioned upon your repentance and your turning to me and will erase the debt. Or I can give you what's behind door number two, which is the judges. I can bring back that old system and you can try and see how that works again, but it's gonna come to the same exact conclusion it did the last time, which is it didn't work. Or you can force me to do something even worse than that. And that is really descriptive of how the Lord works in our lives. He shows us the problem He says, let's reason together. Let's think about this from my perspective, God's perspective. Here's the problem. There's sexual sin. There's greed. There's avarice. There's murder. Everybody wants what everybody else has. You want power and authority over other people. These are the basic things. What are you going to do about it? He says, you've got to give them up. You have to surrender. You see, that's the beauty of the faith that I have. I've surrendered. It's like, God, you win. I'm throwing myself. When we go into court, you can express your desire to throw yourself on the mercy of the court. What that simply means is I'm going to surrender to you, and I'm going to believe with all of my heart that you are not going to give me the fullness of what I have earned or deserved, the penalty of my transactions that I've made that are not in accordance with the laws. God's saying, why don't you throw yourself on my mercy? Why don't you cry out for my unmerited favor, my grace? Why don't you just simply relent? Why don't you repent? Why don't you give up? Look, here's the problem. Your sins are as scarlet. Here's what they are. Why don't you turn from those? There's another reason, and it's the only thing that can fix it. You got a choice. Repentance and restoration. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty good to me. When I reasonably think about those things, I'm like, hmm, now what's the other choice? Ah, destruction. Hmm. Let's reason together. Here's what's going to happen repent, relent, or I'm going to destroy you. Now, we, we don't like these types of dilemmas in our life, and people have tried to dumb down Christianity to say, well, you don't really need to repent. You don't need to relent. You can keep your sin and have Jesus, too. I'm here to tell you that is not taught anywhere in Scripture. That is a false view of your salvation. That is a rank lie is what that is. The Bible clearly says you must repent. Turn from your evil ways... To receive the mercy of the Lord. Now repentance doesn't mean that you instantaneously become perfect, but it does mean that you agree with God and say, you know what? I'm a mess, and I'm accepting your mercy and grace. Verse 27, Zion shall become redeemed with justice, and her penitence, notice it, circle it, penitence. Penitents are those who are repentant Someone who recognizes they were going the wrong direction, they now want to go the right direction. And her penitence with righteousness. How do you get redeemed and how do you have justice applied? By becoming a penitent one who is cloaked in righteousness. AKA salvation by grace through faith. The destruction of the transgressors. Notice the contrast here. And of sinners shall be together. There are no degrees of sinners. You're either a sinner or you're a saved sinner. So if you're an unsaved sinner, there's no degrees of unsaved sinner. They're just all gonna face exactly the same condition, which is at the great white throne of judgment. You're gonna finally be cast into the pit, which was actually built for Satan and his angels. Not for you, but you have to make a choice and step over the body of Jesus to get there. You're gonna have to dance over grace in order to get to hell. But it clearly says, gives you a choice. The mountain of God, that's what Zion means. The people of God should be redeemed with justice. God has to be just. He can't be unjust. So there has to be a payment made for the sin. And it has to be total and complete. There must be redemption. The price must be paid in full, which that scarlet condition can only be paid in full by the blood of Christ. Then you get the penitent's righteousness. The destruction of the transgressor and of the sinner shall be altogether, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. There's no remedy apart from the Lord for they should be ashamed of the terebinth trees. Now, you probably don't have a terebinth tree in your house right now. That was a type of an oak. Maybe you have an oak, might have a some species of oak. But what they're referring to here, a terebinth tree was the place that was considered a place of worship. And interestingly enough, as you go up on the top of Mount Carmel, there are still terebinth trees all over Mount Carmel, which is the location of this incredible battle between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And so they went to the terebinth trees and there on the mountain, they worshiped Molech, they worshiped Baal. But see, some people aren't ashamed of worshiping a false god. They're not ashamed of the sins that are mentioned here. Like, well, you know, it's not that big a deal. God says it's a big deal. But he also offers a remedy where they should be ashamed of the terebinth trees which you have desired. You should be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen. The gardens that they're speaking of were the gardens again of the, the kings of the ancient Near East which were places of worship. You're going someplace other than the house of God. For you shall be as the terebinth tree whose leaf fades in a garden that has no Water. In other words, if you will not relent, if you will not repent, if you will not turn, then God's going to cut off the water to your garden. The strong shall be as tender. And that word tender doesn't mean tender as in, you know, nice and soft and mushy. It means tender as in dry grass that when you put a match to it, it burns in an instant. Says a strong will be as if they were a fire starter, would be another way to look at it. And the work of it as a spark, and both will burn together and no one will quench them. And so he's reminding us look, here's what the nation looked like. Here's why God allowed this time of captivity. This is why the children of Israel are going to be taken away to Babylon, which we are picking up the story of Daniel towards the end of the captivity in the city of Babylon. Nehemiah has not yet returned to rebuild the city. They're about to go there. They he's saying, look, here's, here's why that's gonna happen. This is the reason you're gonna be taken captive. And he says, look, it isn't gonna be good so why don't you turn? They didn't turn. And so Isaiah says, look, you're, you're murderers, you're, you're robbers. You, you bribe everyone. You exploit, excuse me, the helpless. You worship heathen idols. The world is still in this condition. But we have a reasonable faith. That absolutely knows the solution to the problem. We, we who sit here tonight, who know the Lord, who love the Lord, could make the same diagnoses of our world today, could we not? Probably some of you have been following along with this thing that happened with Chick Fil A, with them pulling funding from the Salvation Army and also Fellowship of Christian Athletes. By the way, the headquarters of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes for Los Angeles County is here in this church. But as you think of these things, as you look at what's going on, I read a little article and Dan Cathay, the president of Chick-fil-A has now responded and there is actually a really good reason why that they've removed that. Um, you, You probably should know and you can look this up on Forbes.com, the top 10 uh, nonprofits in the United States of America. The Salvation Army last year took in $4.3 billion. They had an $880 million surplus last year. So the reason that Chick-fil-A decided to withhold that funding was simply because Salvation Army doesn't need their money. It could do better elsewhere. That's why it was done. But our world seizes on those things. And our world instantaneously turns it into everyone hates homosexuals. And everyone's against everyone. And everyone's trying to take advantage of everyone. The problem is, in our world, that's the way our world is going. We can see it. We who know the Lord and love the Lord can look at those things and go, that looks just like Jerusalem during the time of the prophet Isaiah. There was only one remedy then and there's only one remedy now. Though your sins be as scarlet, these are scarlet sins. We would all sit here and agree, yep, those are some of the biggies. If you're one of those people who likes to rate them, these are some of the top ten. Though your sins are as scarlet, they can be made white as wool. He doesn't just stop. The, the judge in this case, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, doesn't just say, "Look, here's the problem." <coughs> Excuse me, the problem. He basically says, "Look, let's reason this out together. All you need to do is repent and turn." And they can be made white as well. Amen? We move on as we go through chapter 2 and this story gets fleshed out and it becomes extremely interesting. We're going to meet Messiah. We're, we're going to see this beautiful work that God wants to do uh, in our world yet still today. We're going to get a glimpse of the future. We're going to get a glimpse of Uh, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And so hang on, it's gonna be an amazing time. We'll be moving quickly uh, over these next uh, several months uh, to get through a bulk of the first 30 or so chapters here. And so let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us uh, this week as we probably all know somebody whose sins are still scarlet and need to be made white as wool. Father, we who love you, We who are called by your name, we who know the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the most excellent one, the most high God, the Savior, King of the universe, Lord, the great I am, the Lamb who is slain. Lord, we who know you just cry out for our nation, for our government, Lord, for our neighbors, for the people that we work for. Lord, we all know somebody who still needs to turn. And so we pray tonight, if there's anyone here, Lord, gathered in this place that does not yet know you, they're still clinging to those scarlet sins. They have not cast themselves on your mercy, that you would speak the truth of your gospel into their lives. You would repent. And cry out to you, Jesus, the only way and truth and life. What you said was true that no one can come to the Father but by you. And so, Lord, we thank you for that redemption. We thank you for our reasoned faith. Pray it should cause it to grow. In Jesus' name, amen.